And it is good to be with you again this morning. We give thanks for safe travel. It did appear on a number of occasions that those who are with us on the highways were distracted either by text messaging or some other uh, critical activity. Uh, And, you know, coming up that uh, two-lane highway, there are moments of uh, fear and trembling. (laughs) We're going to look this morning at Esther chapter 4. Esther is, uh, it's an interesting book. Love the history of it. Uh, One of the things in this past week as I was preparing for uh, the message, uh, I saw something that I had not seen before, and that is the correlation in, in this one way with the book of Daniel. That in the book of Daniel, uh, there's a the people of of uh, Israel are also in exile, but in the book of Daniel, visions and and God's presence is very much highlighted. His you know supernatural works, but here in the book of Esther, again God's people uh, in exile, but the name of God is nowhere mentioned in the book. Nevertheless. The hand of God is clearly evident in every page. And ultimately, God's people, this is apparently through just the passing of ordinary, you know, earthly events, the people of God are still saved by the hand of God. So even if we don't see it explicitly, we need to recognize that he is everywhere present and present here this morning. So reading from uh, chapter 4, the whole of chapter 4 this morning. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is 
for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. As Susan and I drove up uh, this morning from Hendersonville, uh, we thought just two weeks ago we had the delight of a family weekend. Our son drove up from Florida and our other son and his wife and our granddaughter drove up from Mississippi. And those of you with grandchildren, you know, It is a precious time uh, to have those few days together, and uh, she's pretty amazing. And as we thought about her, she just turned two in September. As we thought about her, on a number of occasions, we thought about the world into which she was born. She has been born. And thought, man, oh man what a hard time. What a difficult time, how sad it is. And uh, I don't know, some months ago, Susan uh, had been thinking about that and praying about it. And, and she reminded me, even today, God remains on the throne. And we need to remember that ourselves, that when all seems to be out of control, that we know the one who is in control of all things. So that's what we want to look at this morning. The reality, first of all, that God's people always live in peril. And that as fallen people, we are always tempted to try and manage things, to work things out for ourselves using our strategies and the rest. But finally that our hope is not in our efforts, but our hope is in the one, again, who sits on the throne and reigns from above. So first of all, looking at the opening of chapter 4, uh, it's covered in that section, Haman, who is a, he's a man who's highly regarded by the king. The king basically appears to be a dupe in a number of ways. He, he's directed to what uh, actions he should take. He, he's always looking to somebody else. And so Haman came up with this idea uh, as a result of Mordecai disrespecting him publicly that he needed to get rid of Mordecai 
And even more so, he needed to get rid of all the people related to Mordecai. And so there was an edict that he uh, pressed the king to release, uh, and on a particular day, all of the Jews would be annihilated. And so it is to that announcement, to the issuing of that edict, that Mordecai is responding in the opening part of the chapter. Now, we may not know a whole lot. We've heard of sackcloth and ashes, putting on sackcloth and ashes. You know what sackcloth is? It's basically a hairy garment, right? It's what John the baptizer wore uh, during his earthly ministry, typically made of camel's hair. It's, it's, it's not like percale sheets or anything like that. It is itchy and uncomfortable. And it's a reminder of the distress that, that the mourner, basically the lamenter, was experiencing in, in that time. Uh, you remember anybody else, John the Baptizer, anybody else that was uh, given to wearing hairy garments? One of them was Job. Job. And Job, this is one of my favorite portions, and I, you have to know I love my wife. But Job's wife was exemplary in the way that she encouraged him in his distress. Do you remember what she said? Curse God and die. You know, if you're in that, if you're in that much trouble, curse God and die. Um, he lost everything. Think about Joseph. Joseph, in the Old Testament, Joseph was his father's favorite and lived a life of privilege. And all of a sudden, he found himself roughed up by his brothers, sold into slavery, and he got knocked around a whole lot. Spent years in prison, forgotten there by one he had done a great favor for. God's people live in peril. Think about in, uh, in the life of Moses. As a result of what Pharaoh was, was worried about, what he, what he wanted to forestall, he put to death all of the male children of the Hebrews. Apparently, Moses alone was saved. I don't know that we think a whole lot about that. The God of heaven, the God who attached himself, called to himself Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He permitted these many sons of his, of his people to die in that place. Even in the Gospels, we're told that Herod was afraid of the coming of Jesus. And in those days, he put to death all of, this is his own people. He killed the children of his own people, the sons, two years and younger. Those are awful things to consider and to recognize that God has permitted such a thing. I don't think it's too strong to say it does cause us pause. Does it not? How could a good holy, righteous, loving God permits such a thing.
not going to answer that question entirely because I don't think the question can be answered entirely. We do not possess the mind of God. What we possess is the word of God who reveals to us enough for faith. And we'll come back and talk about that in a moment. But think about um, the perils that we live in, relatively speaking, friends. We have a pretty comfortable life. I don't want to make light of inflation. I don't want to make light of any of the other uh, issues, abortion and other social issues that are very much at the forefront of our minds. And, and again, how could an omnipotent, sovereign God permit a nation that has been, if not founded upon, largely influenced and driven by faith, to fall so far. And a survey of history will tell you that is not, this is not the first time it's happened. Many nations, many nations have ultimately come to disregard the God who reveals himself chiefly in the person of Jesus Christ and in the scriptures, and God's people have been in peril. If you want to read In some ways it's gruesome, but the history of God's church in peril, the book Fox's Book of Martyrs, it is story after story of Christians who gave their lives tormented for their faith. So I don't want to make light at all of what it is that Mordecai is doing here. He is grieving what he anticipates being the loss of his life and of all of his countrymen. On the whim of one man, Haman, who has the ear of the king. So, sackcloth and ashes, wailing loudly and bitterly, And Mordecai was not alone in this. As the edict was published and circulated, all those in the kingdom who came to know of it ultimately grieved. Not everyone uh, entered into sackcloth and ashes. The word many is descriptive. Many. And the truth of the matter is, we are not equally alarmed by all of the perils that we face. There are different degrees of alarm that you and I experience as we look at life and the difficulties of life. But Mordecai's grieving got the attention of Queen Esther. She was distressed, not for the same reasons that he was distressed. She didn't know to be distressed. But she was distressed to see him in distress. And so she sought to encourage him. Now, this is not the worst possible kind of intervention, but she wants to relieve the outer distress that Mordecai is expressing. He ripped his clothes. He put on these hairy garments. And he's wailing. And she said, I'll just go to J.C. Penney and I'll outfit him again and he'll be okay. Now, 
Now, again, it's not the worst possible strategy, but give consideration. She has a plan. She knows what to do to work this thing out. She will encourage him. There are ways that we conceive of uh, of relieving our distress at whatever level, right? I, I, I think how many of you really enjoy pain? You slam your finger in the car door. Can you feel that? Those of you who have done it, you can feel that, right? Or you're going to drive a nail into a board, and I don't own a nail gun, which, I mean, those things scare me. But I've, I've missed a nail and hit my thumb. I can't tell you the number of times. I don't enjoy that pain. I don't think we enjoy pain. And physical pain is of one sort, but emotional pain. The grief at the loss of a loved one is real. And we try various ways to deal with that kind of pain, too. There are times when the word denial fits, right? I just am not willing to acknowledge the pain that I'm experiencing. I'm not willing to acknowledge the grief. And I go on as if nothing has changed. There's a form of denial that actually Esther uh, lives in. And that's something that Mordecai is trying to call attention to a way he doesn't know for certain, but a way that his people, Esther's people, might be saved. And so, it, okay, you look at this passage, you read through it, and I don't know about your school, but it looked like junior high school to me, you know, passing notes during study hall back and forth. And it takes a while to get the message clear. Right? And that's what happens. So finally, Esther understands this is what's wrong. And Mordecai actually explains, you, know, you, need, to, you need to take the opportunity that is provided you as a favored queen in the court to intervene for your people. And she's afraid that it's contrary to the rules. And you see it, it's, it's clear here. If I attempt to go into the inner court of the king in order to get his attention and press this issue, the law says unless the king extends the scepter, then I will be put to death. It doesn't matter that I'm the favorite of all the king's uh, queens, it doesn't matter. I still should be put to death. As I thought about this passage, I think it helps us to think about how important this is when you recognize the kinds of boundaries that God puts on worship in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Right? There is the court of the Gentiles, and then there's the court of Israel, and then there's the court of the priests, the holy place, and then there is this place 
referred to as the holy of holies. It's the most holy place. Sometimes it's designated that way. And into the most holy place, one man could go on one occasion during an entire calendar year. That's a pretty tightly held boundary, wouldn't you say? And over time, the people, I don't think it's necessarily they got spooked, although you might say that. But over time, before the high priest went in to offer the sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, they would tie a cord around his ankle so those on the outside of the Holy of Holies, if they heard the priest fall, and then there was no movement, they had a way of retrieving him without risking going in themselves. God guarded the inner court of his temple. And so what King Darius is doing here, Xerxes uh, is his other name, what the king is doing is he is setting himself apart when he sits in the inner throne room. We understand that royalty has its privilege. And so it was a fearful thing for Esther to approach the king in this way. And she, at least initially, she wanted to have nothing to do with it. There's a phenomenon in our day, and I would guess that most of us are familiar with it, where we are careful to express our opinions in certain company. Sometimes it's political or social, right? Sometimes it's theological or biblical. Sometimes it's just much more personal, a preference. But there are times, and, and I'm not saying it's always wrong to do so, but we use silence as a way of protecting ourselves. We, too, use silence. And, and that's what Esther is. I'm going to protect myself. Silence is going to be, it's going to be my protection. And Mordecai says, you're miscalculating. That you are one of God's people, and if you fail to speak, it, it's pretty amazing here. He says, if you fail to speak, God, he is so confident, and he doesn't mention God specifically, but he's so confident in the protection of his people that he says salvation will rise from someplace else. And then this question, who knows? but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. What strikes me as I read that, and, and I have every confidence that you have considered this before, God says in, uh, through his word, the Apostle Paul says that in the body of Christ, we take different places. Right? 
And some of the places that we take in God's body are Well, they're public places. You know, they're, they're, being here up front preaching on Sunday morning, it's a, pra- it's a place of some privilege. And by contrast, I want to be careful about this, but some serve the church in much more, well, they're not public ways, right? Somebody cleans the church. Right? There are some there are some works that are done more in isolation. I think in the old King James ignoble is the word that's used. Doesn't mean it's meaningless. Doesn't mean that it's unimportant. It just means it's not so visible to either the church or to the world. Who knows? but that you have come to royal position or, friends, to whatever position you have come for such a time as this. It can be in your family line. There are legacies in our families, and some of them we want to continue, but some of the legacies we want to break. Right? In my family... My immediate family, I was the first to come to Christ. My mom and dad had grown up in the church, but faith in Christ was not something we went to church, but faith in Christ, explicitly naming Christ as Savior, was not something that was part of our family's life. Uh, One time a year, we read the scriptures together as a family. We read Luke chapter 2 on Christmas Eve in our brand new pajamas, and then we went to bed and we looked forward to Santa Claus. That's a legacy. I didn't know it at the time, but that's a legacy to change for such a time as this. There are legacies that we live out um, in our local churches. Right? Some of the things that happen in a local church They get perpetuated over time. And for such a time as this, you are challenged and have been challenged since uh, Pastor Barnes' retirement. There are different responsibilities to fall to different ones of you during this time of transition. For such a time as this, you are here. And hopefully soon, You'll be in a position to welcome a new pastor and his family in whatever form that takes. And you'll be here to welcome him and them. You're here for such a time as this, or as that, I should say, more accurately. You're here for that. For such a time as this. God has appointed us for such a time as this. And what, what is expressed here in Esther as a matter of course is something that Paul, again, expresses much more explicitly in the uh, opening chapter of the book of Ephesians, if you turn there with me. When I found this, 
a friend of mine brought me to this chapter early on after I came to Christ. And when I came to this, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but this is what I call a dense section of Scripture. There's a lot to sort through in this portion. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, uh, made heirs. We were, God set his affection on us and welcomed us into his family. We became adopted. Uh, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So let's, we're going to track that backwards for a moment. What comes first apparently is his will. God has a will. No, no, no. No. His will flows out of his purposes. What are the purposes of God? Westminster, Shorter Catechism, number one. What are the purposes of God? They're expressed there in the way that we respond to him. We are to glorify God and, and enjoy him forever, right? And so God is to be glorified. The purpose of his will is that he be honored as he should be honored. And in so doing, it will be for our good. Our lives will be fulfilled in that. That is the purpose of his will. He works all things according to the purpose of his will. And there's nothing that is out of conformity with the fulfillment of the purpose of his will. Um, Y'all recognize the name John Newton? Amazing Grace, right? John Newton. Uh, recently, I was listening to a message by Tim Keller, and he quoted a letter that Newton had written to a parishioner. And the thrust of that letter, Newton said, nothing that is needful for us will God withhold. Nothing that is needful for us will God withhold. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not the smallest thing that we need for life and godliness will be withhold, uh, withheld for us. And what that means is, if I believe something is needful, but I haven't got it yet, either it's not time or it's not the thing that I really need. There's a, there's a reality that this speaks of. And it's something that Esther ultimately enters into. It's waiting. Waiting is an action step. Waiting is an activity. It's a behavior that we as God's people need to enter into as we, we long for the fulfillment of his will. That is our hope that God, in fact, will accomplish all his holy will and we will 
benefit from living in that. But we're waiting. Think about the Apostle Paul. He wrote one of the letters, and now I'm trying to remember what it is. I think it's, I want to say it's 1 Thessalonians. And his expectation is expressed like Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be within our lifetimes. Now 2,000 years later. That's a whole lot of waiting for a whole lot of believers. But that's what Esther does. You see it? Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Three days, night or day. That's not all that long a time. But it's still waiting. And it's a collective activity. Now, there are times when one of us will enter into a time of fasting. We'll be waiting on the Lord and we do it quietly. We do it. Uh, by ourselves, but in this case, Esther asked Mordecai to gather to gather God's people as he is able to, that they would together plead for his intervention. And that's what they do. Sometimes we just need to wait before we see his deliverance. The Lord Jesus says, you know, if your fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more the Father in heaven? When, you know, when I mislay something, when I lose something, which does happen from time to time, right? Uh, When something becomes damaged or broken. Yesterday we were in downtown Hendersonville, And it wasn't the worst thing ever, but we watched as a fellow backed into somebody else's car there on Main Street. And Susan said immediately, you know, it's it's not the damage. It's having to go get three estimates and, you know, go through the rigmarole of, you know, dropping the car off, being without it for several days. And ultimately, folks, it is relatively painless. Irksome might be the better word, but still in all, there's a loss. I'm not ready for sackcloth and ashes at that point, but there's a loss. But Jesus says, if, if in fact your earthly father knows how to give good gifts, how much more your father in heaven? Sometimes the gifts that he gives are gifts that are hard to receive. The Apostle Paul, as a result of the thorn in the flesh, he was able to say, I praise God for hardship, for distresses, for persecutions. It's because he knew the Father and trusted the Father. How do I trust the Father? I've got to tell you, when I'm left to myself, it's much more difficult. But when I'm in the company of saints... And there are things, hardships that you've experienced and you've seen the hand of God. And you are able to speak that. It encourages me. Just do a little word study. Encourage. I need to be encouraged when there's a loss of 
courage. That's what Esther's talking about here. I'm afraid to go in. I'm afraid to, to take advantage of my position. I'm afraid I might die. And Mordecai encourages her. That's one of the other actions that grows out of faith. That I am in a position, if anyone is discouraged, I'm in a position to encourage. And that's one of the actions of faith. Are you distressed? What is of distress? Sometimes I'm embarrassed to be distressed. I'm embarrassed to say how much I am distressed. But it's in that moment that we need to engage in the same kind of behavior here. I'm sharing my distress. And what Esther asks is for others to help her bear the distress. She alone was going in. She alone would pay the price. But she asked God's people to bear with her the burden of walking in. We come to Christ individually, don't we? You may not be able to remember. Some of you came to Christ as children. I I remember April 16th, 1976, the day that I acknowledged Jesus Christ, in fact, was the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And I, got, actually, God gathered around me a whole different group of friends who were source of encouragement, who they also knew that Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of sinners. He's revealed himself to us as a body. He died that we might know the hope of not only our salvation, but of eternity. So that's one of the reasons we can bear these temporary distresses. For we know that on the other side is an eternity where God will be revealed in all his glory and we will have the opportunity to sing of it, to shout for joy. And so as we close our service, there's a little practice that we're going to do. He deserves our worship and our praise. For he is the good God, and he will surely rescue us. Amen. Father, we pray this morning a prayer of thanksgiving. You give us eyes to see, not only in the pages of Esther, but in the day-to-day events of our lives. You give us eyes to see ways that you are present. Even, Lord, sometimes from the lips of those who do not know you. There is a testimony of your word. There's an echo of your promises. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would enable us that we would not just trust your promises, but we actually would trust you who do promise. We thank you for your word. We praise you Now, by the force of your word and the work of your spirit and the encouragement we receive as we walk together in faith, that we will walk out these things and that when life appears to be out of control, that we will remember it is not. 
We pray it in the great name of Jesus. Amen.